And I'm going to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to be reading the, the entirety of this. It's a longer section of Scripture, um, one kind of storyline. And so I'm going to be reading it in chunks as we go through the sermon today. So open to Acts chapter 16 if you have Bibles, or click there, tap there if you're using those devices. It's on page 925 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. 9.25 and it'll spill over to 9.26. Acts chapter 16. If you look at the title of the sermon today, it's not a typo. The S is intentional. As it is in our mission statement. Helping all peoples find new life in Jesus. And helping them grow to bear fruit for Him. That would be the full mission statement that we've been operating under with this picture of being like a greenhouse environment, that we would find new life, new shoots, we would grow deep roots in Him, that we would bear diverse kinds of fruit for His glory and for our joy. So the S is intentional. Uh, All types and tribes, from unique individuals, which is you and me, to unreached groups, which is a heartbeat of the Alliance movement as a whole. This is the diverse fruit that we are striving for and that we've really modeled uh, so much of our ministry after the story of the early church in Acts. And we've seen some of these churches, uh, the Antioch church being a significant one that we would say was probably the first greenhouse church, the first diverse church with eyes to the fields. And here this one, this special one, maybe a church that was, there was no church closer to Paul's heart than this one that was planted in Macedonia, the church of Philippi. And so it's one of my favorite sections of scripture to see how this church grew. And it's really, you will see the model of of our mission, helping all peoples find new life in Jesus. Because the three specific individuals and then the households of those individuals that get saved in this story are radically different, just emphasizing God's love and pursuit of, of truly all peoples and that none are, are beyond His reach or outside of his, the range of His love and His grace. And so we are reminded of that today and also encouraged that we too, of those people that are the last, the least, the lost God is pursuing and loving and reaching. So beginning in verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we made in this city, we remained in this city some days. The door to Macedonia has been opened. So in case you missed last Sunday, uh, the, the we mentioned here, that's a shift the way Luke has been writing. It was they, and now it's we. So Luke has joined this small missionary team of now Paul and Silas, and now Timothy, who's jumped in with them. So it's that team of four. There may have been others, but it's a small team uh, who are journeying now into Macedonia. The door to Macedonia was opened. The door to throughout Asia to these other cities, which was their original vision and plan, has been closed We looked at that last week. God closed these doors. He restricted them and prevented them, the Holy Spirit did, from from going as they were planning to go. And that must have been somewhat frustrating. 
as they were on mission, willing to continue to risk their lives, taking these faith-filled risks, uh, the Spirit stops them. We're not told how he did that, but they knew it was of the Spirit. So they waited. Paul received a vision of a man in Macedonia calling out to them. We don't know who this man is. It's interesting that the first people they meet are actually a group of women. So there's a mystery uh, to this vision, but nonetheless, they know the Spirit is in it and has redirected their path. What's, what's striking about this is our, our geography may be amiss, and you're welcome to jump on your devices and search ancient Philippi and pull up maps and see where it sits. And it wasn't that long of a journey, relatively, uh, by boat, about 150 miles. It took them two days. They must have had good wind with them because uh, it takes quite a bit longer than on the reverse journey we'll see later. But not that long of a journey, and yet they moved from one continent to another, And that's significant. The gospel is truly going to the ends of the earth. It's now expanding beyond Asia into Europe for the first time. This would be kind of the southeastern portion of Europe, but nonetheless, uh, they have now journeyed really from east to now west. And that's a pretty powerful expansion that we see taking place in fulfillment to God's promise, to the Holy Spirit's commission that they would be His witnesses to the ends of the earth, uh, as was their Custom, they would go to leading cities uh, and do ministry within those cities first, and then from there the gospel would diffuse out into the surrounding region. Philippi was a major city. Uh, Luke says a leading city. Some have believe actually Luke was from there originally, the way he speaks of it and why he joined them kind of at this portion of their journey. Uh, don't know for sure, but just a, a thought, a wonder. It was a port city. It was on the Aegean Sea, so that's a branch of the Mediterranean, and it was right in the middle of what was then uh, the world's greatest trade route, the Via Ignatio. It was a 700-mile-long trade route from uh, Byzantium in the east, later it would be Constantinople and today Istanbul, all the way to the Adriatic Sea in the west, which would then connect to the remaining regions of Europe through the Mediterranean Sea. This was a powerful uh, trade route and a port city where there was just a lot of trade coming in and out and along the Via Ignatia. The storied history of Philippi, by the time that they arrived uh, here, the, the city has been kind of thriving for a couple hundred years. King Philip II uh, took over this city by force a few hundred years earlier and in his ego, I guess, named it after himself. He passed on that ego, by the way, to his son, Alex. Uh, His son, Alex, dubbed himself the Great One. You may have heard of him. A few centuries after the city was established, Philippi, uh, it went through a transition to become a Roman colony. You may remember some ancient history, or it may be fuzzy, but Uh, Julius Caesar's nephew Octavian and the general Mark Antony defeated Caesar's assassins in a battle just outside of Philippi. And as they won that battle, they established Philippi under Roman rule. It became a Roman province, a Roman colony. And so it became very distinctively Roman in architecture over the years, in in literature, in uh, the arts. And it was an affluent type city. Uh, what Rome, the Roman Empire would often do would be send uh, ex-military veterans into these cities to live, and if they, would, if they would go, maybe they were invited to go, maybe they were directed to go, but they would plant them in these cities, and then they would exempt their taxes. So that's a little bit of a perk. 
uh, but in order to continue to promote kind of Roman rule under Caesar, that's how they would establish uh, their, their reign over the region. And so Philippi was one of those cities with this Roman flavor. And I think we could see some uh, potential connections. They, were, they prided themselves for religious devotion, both to the Roman Empire and to various pagan spiritualities. So if we were to summarize that brief history lesson, a port city, ethnically diverse, culturally eclectic, financially affluent, and socially and politically influential. Sound familiar? Maybe like a city we might know about. And yet there were no churches in this city. How about that difference? In fact, there was not even a Jewish synagogue. And if you know kind of the strategy of these early church planters, they would go into the synagogue first and teach and preach about Jesus as the Messiah, and whether received or not, would then move on from there. Well, that wasn't an option in Philippi. According to uh, the Jewish Talmud, which was the rabbinical text of the, of the Jews, um, there needed to be ten men to establish certain religious practices in a region. So we could infer with no synagogue that there weren't even ten Jewish men living in all of Philippi. And so as they maybe asked around, they were directed to this group of women meeting by the river. And so Paul is going fishing in a a virgin river. Uh, Verse 13, pick it up. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household with her, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul and and the team found this group of women, supposing that whoever they had asked to direct them were correct and maybe wondering, Uh, Would there be anyone there that Sabbath day? And they found these women. Not told how many. Uh, Lydia is the only one named. Maybe the others believed also. Uh, There seemed to be a powerful working of the Spirit in their midst. One thing, a few things we can uh, know from Lydia. We don't know much, but we can draw out, I guess, from this description. Is she? She seems to be a wealthy and successful businesswoman. She now has established her business in a different city, uh, a leading trade city, Uh, so maybe she has outposts in a few places. Uh, She's seeking God. So she's an affluent, think of her as an affluent, wealthy businesswoman, still seeking God, perhaps not finding the fulfillment in earthly gain that uh, so many are striving for. Notice that her whole household believes, so we could infer that she has Influence and significance, if not honor and respect within her home as she uh, is leading her home, her family, though we don't know much about the rest of her situation. What we do know is that the Philippian church is, is born, it's birthed, it's planted in this moment as these first converts, these women, turn and put their faith in Jesus. And this, would, for us, uh, we may not even pause or stumble over that at all, that, that women essentially planted and were the first leaders of this church, which would become a very significant church, certainly in the life of Paul, 
but also in the missionary uh, giving, as we know from Paul's letter, back to the Philippian church. So we today may not stumble at all over that fact, but when Luke wrote that, and call, he was calling this out, that the Spirit of Jesus is working amongst all peoples, and it shouldn't even have to be said, but those reading it would have said, even among women, just as Jesus' ministry and his announcement of his resurrection was first to women, affirming God's love and pursuit of all peoples, uh, whether slave, right? There's no slave nor, nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. They're all one in Christ. God's heart for the lost, the last, and the least is unlimited. So it's a powerful story of the church being born. Lydia opens her home. Not sure why she had to prevail upon them for them to stay there. We're not told that, but it sounds like her hospitality and generosity was full. So we can just see them, envision them kind of setting up camp in her home. There was no synagogue to go to. So they stay and they, during the day, go out and preach in the streets and invite everyone to life group at Lydia's house, maybe every night of the week. Come on over and let's talk about Jesus. Well, one of the next Sabbath days, whether it was the next week or some weeks, we're not told. Uh, There's some vague time descriptors here. They stayed in the city for some days. But this next Sabbath or a couple Sabbaths later, verse 16, we were going back to the place of prayer, Luke says, And we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she's demonically uh, possessed, influenced. And she was following Paul and us and crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. I love this next phrase. I don't know why, just because the reality of scripture and It gives us another insight into who Paul is. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, so if anyone's felt greatly annoyed in life or maybe this week or this morning, uh, it's biblical. I'm not sure if it's encouraged, but it is biblical. Just like I'm like Paul, I'm greatly annoyed. And he turned and he said to the spirit, not to the girl, to the spirit, he discerned that, which is interesting because what she said was true, right? If that's all she was saying, she was proclaiming truth. So maybe that's why he let it go on for some days, but eventually realized, discerned that this is an evil spirit, still proclaiming truth, uh, just as Satan was able to proclaim much truth and then mix it with great lies. He speaks to the spirit and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of this girl. And it came out at that very hour. What's striking is that this slave girl stands in such absolute contrast to Lydia. I was reading a short little book by Pastor Matt Chandler on this passage or on on the Philippian letter, I believe. And he said this, Lydia is an Asian woman while this girl is a Greek girl. Lydia was an owner and controller of a business. Well, this girl is owned and controlled by others. Lydia was affluent and intellectual. This girl is impoverished and abused. Ironically, Lydia didn't know the way to salvation, but was looking. This girl proclaims the way to salvation, though unknowingly, not looking. Such a contrast, and I think this is intentional by Luke. Certainly many others were coming to faith in Jesus in Philippi. The church is growing, but these ones are specifically shown us to show the depth of God's love 
And that vision of his eyes to all, all peoples, all hurting, lost, oppressed, abused. No one is outside of his reach. We don't know the end of this story with this girl specifically. I think it's fair to assume that as she is delivered, and we know that is true, she is delivered, that she finds hope and healing also in Jesus and comes into this community. In the same way that God is after Lydia's heart, He is after this girl's heart. Right? The Gospel got to Lydia's heart as Paul clearly engaged her and the others intellectually as they talked through the Scriptures, as he shared the Gospel. But how does he get to this slave girl? He gets to her heart spiritually. And she is delivered in that moment. And so Paul again models, as we called out last week, what he wrote back to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9. I'm willing to become all things to all peoples so as to save some. His methods, his strategy is open. Whatever is needed in the time to contextualize the gospel, whether it's the intellectual aspects of the gospel or whether it's the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel of healing and deliverance into this moment of time for this girl. Well, he's about to have that willingness tested to the max of becoming all things to all peoples so as to save some. And the story goes on in verse 19. When the owners of this girl saw that now their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace. I'm not sure you know, what happened here to Luke and Timothy if they kind of scurried to the side or just weren't with them in this moment. And they brought them before the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So they're basically saying, hey, we're, we're called to worship Caesar. These men are not worshiping Caesar. That's what they're advocating. The crowd joined in in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So great, right? There's the end of the church plant. A couple of weeks ago, I was with the six other uh, regional alliance pastors, and we collaborate and meet together with the hope and the prayer to see more expansion of the gospel and kingdom, church planting happening in our region. So we were doing that, and as we do, we tell, tell stories of what God is about and at work in, and, and I know most of their stories. I know that none of them, and nor me, have ever planted a church that survived one of us being thrown into prison. And uh, that doesn't seem to be happening all that often, and I guess our stories aren't making Scripture either. So you kind of wonder if there's some strategy here that we are missing as we often talk about methods and strategy. Um, maybe we would just like to avoid that again, this is description, not prescription, right? The Holy Spirit was not about to have this end, the church plant. And Paul, we see continually relentless, right? He's beaten and bruised along with Silas. He's now imprisoned and in chains in the stocks. By the way, the stocks in that day, I don't know what comes to mind when we think of stocks. Uh, maybe if there's any picture that comes to mind, it's probably the stocks in the 1700s where um, the accused or you know, the convicted would be 
put out for humiliation, basically, and for insults, and they you know, have their arms in their head through these wooden stocks. That's not the kinds of stocks that would have existed in the first century within prison. This wasn't for humiliation. This was done for torture. This was to contort one's body and chain them to, into a certain position where they could not move. And at first, that may not have hurt, but then over time, the muscles contort and spasm and they can't find relief. So that, and they could be left in that position for hours or days. Uh, the Romans, it seems like if they know anything, they knew how to torture. And so the, here's the, Paul and Silas, now having been in these stocks for hours, not knowing when relief, if it would come, are there in this place and... Uh, Where do we find them? What do we find their response? Verse 25, about midnight, probably unable to sleep, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners who were with them were listening to them. Doubtful that all of the prisoners were in some form of pain uh, or within stocks. And they're watching these two men praying and singing hymns. I don't know, it kind of makes me question my reaction to hard things. I'll let you uh, ponder that as you respond to maybe difficult things in your life. It's convicting. How would they do this? Where was their hope? How was their faith rooted? Well, first we, th- we can look to 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and following where Paul writes this. And with this picture in mind, sometimes these words become illumined a little more for us. This pretty famous portion of scripture there's a couple songs written on this these words of paul second corinthians 4 8 we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair right they had to be questioning spirit you led us here you gave us the vision and that this is this is the way it's playing out they've kind of been down this path before he goes on persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And here's some of the how. Because we always carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That was their motivation. Their hope and their faith was rooted in the commission and mission that Jesus had given generally and specifically the Holy Spirit's direction now that they were exactly where they were supposed to be. And, if, and they already knew it because they already had been seeing fruit in the church. It's been planted. And so their confidence was, with or without us, the Spirit is going to move and the church is going to thrive. And that will be our testimony. I'm certain their prayers and their hymns were also, in some ways, to distract themselves from the pain and keep their eyes and hope fixed on Jesus We don't know if they were primarily giving witness and testimony, though that seems likely if we know anything about Paul. But their eyes are fixed on Jesus. They are showing Jesus. And that will continue as the story now uh, intensifies. Remember Paul would write back to the Philippian church. He said, you know, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. It's Philippians chapter 4. Again, I wonder if he has this picture in mind. Whatever it takes for the hope of the gospel, for Jesus to be made known, I find my rest in him. I find my peace in him. God doesn't always deliver and always rescue. He hadn't promised them that. He doesn't promise any of his followers deliverance and rescue in this life. Though we know it is his heart. And it's evidenced here 
In this case, He works miraculously. Verse 26, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is the third time now we see in Acts, God breaking chains, setting captives free, opening prison doors. It's almost like there's a theme to this deliverance work that God does. And so it should be worth pausing and saying, if you're feeling any sense of bondage or being trapped, burdened, broken, imprisoned, we have a Savior who is a prison-shaking Savior, a chain-breaking Deliverer. Zach Williams wrote a song with some of those lyrics. Going on, verse 27, as the story intensifies, the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Like his one job in life, his one single purpose, uh, about to uh, end here. We also know that often he would have been under the penalty of maybe at minimum losing his job, if not his life, if these prisoners had escaped, if he had under his watch. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, so Paul seems to be aware this is about to happen. Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? His life was about to be extinguished and this very next moment it's about to be saved. Radical, powerful transformation. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them the same hour and he washed their wounds and then he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The most radical transformation of the three, really, I mean, this, I think, tops the exorcism. I think it's one of the most radical transformations of a conversion, a salvation, a saving that we see in the New Testament, right? This jailer went from being a torturer to being a worshiper in a moment, I mean, this was a hardened, callous man. If we read a little bit between the lines, no one told him to torture these men. What did they actually say to him? Take these men into the prison and keep them safe. Lock them up, but keep them safe. That was their direction to him. He came up with the torture part on his own. Maybe that was just his protocol. Hey, I'm going to show them who's in charge. I'll put them in the stocks. I'm going to go take a nap. This is kind of the picture of the man. If we read between the lines a little bit more, we can see the contrast of kind of what Luke is doing here in this story of the Philippian church being planted. We have the wealthy, affluent, intelligent businesswoman, Lydia. We have the poor, abused, oppressed, Greek slave girl. And now we see this, I guess what we could describe like a blue-collar, hardened, calloused laborer. Uh, neither intellectual nor, nor spiritual. You kind of think of punching the time card day in, day out. Every day is the same, except on Thursday where he hit cleanup for his rec softball team. 
Most days, go home, have a couple beers, watch the game. Okay, I'm trying to contextualize. But his identity is clearly in his job. Uh, he, he's willing to take his own life rather than have it taken from him. Rather than even running that risk, whether it was a certainty or not, he's willing to give up his life because now his identity has been compromised. Everything that, probably the only thing he knew he could, could do is now going to be taken from him. What else would be left? There's no hope for him. He would be in despair. Even though clearly he has a home and a household, he's not thinking about them. He's thinking about only himself and probably his own reputation. And that's now been lost. And so he's willing to give his life, to take his life. And in the next moment, Jesus saves it. What a radical transformation. How amazing. Paul and Silas, for this man who has tortured them now for hours, they now turn and minister to him. Show him mercy, grace, forgiveness, the gospel. They are showing him Jesus powerful testimony. I wonder if for this man, you know, clearly they explained their hope and where, where their faith come from, the why. Why would they do this for him? They explained it was all rooted in Jesus. They got to preach the gospel to him. But I think what ultimately saved his life is what he saw with his own eyes. Right? Lydia seems saved by her, her mind and receiving and processing. Certainly it always comes to the heart the slave girl is saved spiritually as she is delivered and freed. And here we see this jailer, I think, saved because of what he sees. This kind of compassion and mercy. Probably more astonishing than the prison being shaken by an earthquake and all of the chains being broken is what he saw in these two men. Something he'd never seen before. And it led him to Salvation in Jesus. He and his whole house. The Philippian church is born. And as there likely were many other salvation stories, these three are called out to show us God's heart. His love and pursuit of all peoples. The last, the lost, and even the least likely. And that includes you and it includes me whether we're experiencing that love and pursuit now in this moment, as if a new thing, as it was for each one of these, a new experience of grace, a love this deep, an acceptance, a belonging, or whether it's for many of us the reminder of what has been done and therefore the promise of what God continues to do, of His heart lost people. We must first receive it. And then also take that reminder and that conviction and look outward to what he's called us to. That's the right response. That's the whole story of Acts. We are recipients of the grace and mercy and salvation of Jesus, of his forgiveness, of freedom from bondage, of hope. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit now on a mission to make him known that others would encounter him. However that might work, whatever it might take from us, whether it's preaching with words or preaching with actions, whether it's faithful to go and take faith-filled risk, 
or faithfulness to stay and engage right where he has it when it would be much easier to escape. We are reminded of what he has done, who he is, and therefore who he always will be. If in this moment you need to experience his grace truly for the first time, you've heard the gospel, probably today not the first time, you've heard it with ears, but do you need to engage it with your mind, with your heart, and with your eyes, see what God is truly doing? And I pray that would be true. And as we have a chance to respond to the table, as we come to experience this, the tangible reality of the spiritual work that Christ has done, that's the reminder. Do this in remembrance of who I am, not just what I've done, who I am, and therefore the hope you have for what I am still about in this world. I am not done, Jesus says to us. Be rescued, be delivered, freed, found, and forgiven. And for all of us who do need this reminder that he's not done, he's not done working Have your hope built up. Yes, there may be conviction. The word convicts and encourages. So the conviction of, uh, I'm not walking with the Spirit. I'm not living in such a way with eyes open and hearts open like Paul and Silas. Am I willing to give all? Am I willing? Though persecution certainly looks different in our culture and context. Am I willing to give it all? Even to follow Jesus. Jesus said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The cost, we count the cost. There's conviction there. Also be encouraged. It's not you or us that changes and transforms lives and hearts. And also be encouraged. I know each of you has a loved one, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, or all of the above, in all of those categories, who are lost, hurting, maybe broken, maybe they know they're broken, not looking to Jesus, We have others that seem more like that jailer, calloused, hardened, ignoring any kind of spirituality or emotional touch into their heart. Whatever whatever category they would be, we might label and say, then from our perspective, they are so far from Jesus. They are so far. They seemingly are outside of his reach. And though we know, intellectually, theologically, that's not true, we operate that way, either in our actions or our prayers or our thoughts. This story reminds us of God's love and pursuit and that no one is outside of his reach. In a moment, that life can be transformed. And so be encouraged Be encouraged that God may want to use you continually or give you at least a front row seat to what he is doing in our communities, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, within your own families. Do not give up. Do not let go. Be faithful to pursue. Be faithful to pray. There may be more you can say. Some of these stories remind us there was more to say. But one of them shows us there was nothing to do but pray, to trust, and let the Spirit do the work, and then be ready to minister. So let's respond. I'll invite the team to come back up. Let's respond to both the grace and mercy 
of Jesus that was on display, His healing power, His ability to break chains and open prison doors and set us captives free. Let's also be praying. And if you even have a moment to pray with someone next to you for a family member or a friend, maybe there's someone that comes to mind that you had been praying for faithfully and consistently, maybe for a long time, but recently, not at all. Wrestle with the Lord on that. Is it simple forgetfulness? Is it bitterness? Jesus, why? And be reminded that His grace, His mercy, His love, His power, His timing, His will, His way is not ours, but it is perfect. And so we worship Him more fully. Lord, teach us to trust You more completely. To pray more fervently. Lord, we want to receive also and be reminded again of what You have done to love and pursue us. Bring that reminder present this morning. Make it real and tangible. Even as we come to the table, may we see Jesus having given His whole life for us. And we take and receive once again as we come to in repentance and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive us, Lord, as we have turned to our own way so many times. As we have not trusted you fully, we want to today. Commission us again, Lord. Let us see with your eyes and be responsive to the Spirit that we would know when to speak and when to be silent. When to go and to move, when to risk, or when to wait and pray and trust. Teach us, Lord. We want to experience you fully in these moments and as we go in the moments ahead throughout the day and the week to come. For your glory and our joy. Amen.